chapter 6, beginning to read verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. <clears throat> Let's stop right there. So here in the opening verses of this section, Paul refers all the way back to the beginning of the letter. The topic again is the false teachers. Paul is essentially saying here that if anyone does not emphasize and promote everything that has been laid out in this epistle, that is the truth that is conformed to the will of God, that person is an enemy of God's purposes. Now James chapter 3 provides us with some insight into the contrast between true wisdom and falsehood. James chapter 3 verse 13, I'll read this to you. It asks the question, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And keep in mind, James chapter 3 is a chapter that is about teachers and their speech. We call it the chapter on the tongue, how to use the tongue. But the chapter begins addressing and admonishing those who teach the word of God. And so the testimony of scripture informs us that the wisdom of carnally minded men living under the guise of teachers of righteousness is a false wisdom. It's evil. The fruit of their lives belies their profession as wise teachers. Verse 4 shows that this kind of person is conceited and understands nothing. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Verse 5 again <clears throat> says, and constant friction between men of depraved mind of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. This is actually where we left off in our last session together. Constant friction, we, we addressed that in our last session. 
This corresponds perfectly to what I just read to you in James chapter 3. In addition to what is said, <clears throat> to what was said to define these men in verse 4, verse 5 adds some additional traits. Notice there in verse 5, it adds the trait that these men are of depraved mind. The word depraved means literally to spoil, to ruin, or utterly destroy. So that which is so spoiled and ruined is the mind of these false teachers. It refers to their ability to reason and think. It refers to a a person's inner disposition, the moral and intellectual capacity to make a decision. Later on, Paul will again call these false teachers men of depraved mind in 2 Timothy 3.8. Of the problem people on Crete, the apostle said to Titus, he will say that both their mind and their conscience is depraved or defiled. Our living arises from our thinking. And when the thinking is so thoroughly confused... The living cannot but be spoiled. The perfect tense of the word here underscores the abiding nature of their depraved thinking. The word depraved here is a verb which we call, it's in what's called the passive voice. And the passive voice probably pictures these people being acted upon by another. Perhaps, as will be seen in the next trait, the evil one is to be understood as behind this corruption and robbery. In other words, they are deceived by Satan. The next thing there, it says that these men are deprived of the truth. They're depraved and they're deprived. The word deprived here means to steal or to rob someone. Here again, it is used in the passive voice, indicating that they are the ones who have been robbed. They have been robbed of truth. The tense of this particular verb, the perfect tense, indicates that they abide in a state in which they are robbed of the truth. They abide in that state. What truth are we talking about? We're talking about gospel truth, biblical truth. Now, just as in the previous word, Paul could simply be viewing them being robbed by the falseness of their ideas. In other words, they were robbed of truth by opposing the lies that they believed, and that's certainly part of it. But ultimately, it is the liar and the father of lies that has defiled their minds and defrauded them of the truth. They have been defrauded. To have had the truth stolen from them seems to indicate that at one time and in some way they had a relationship to the truth. Paul earlier had warned the elders of this church, remember in Acts 20 verse 30, he said, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. 
Now, this may give credence to the notion that at least some, some core of these false teachers were from among the elders themselves. This does not necessitate that they necessarily were necessarily regenerate at one time, but only that they came within the orbit of the truth of the gospel and subsequently disavowed it by embracing a false and hybrid gospel. In 2 Timothy 3.8, Paul writes of them, these men also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. Peter says that they will bring swift destruction upon themselves. That's 2 Peter 2.1. Jude also warns of their impending doom. Jude 1.4, well, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude verse 4 says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only maker and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 15 says, when Jesus returns, he will return to execute judgment upon all and to convict all, <coughs> excuse me, all of the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and all of the harsh, harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's, that's a pretty hardcore judgment. So the severest hell will be reserved for those who, having been exposed to the truth, continue to reject it. And finally, and this is going to launch us into a very powerful warning, not only for the false teachers, but for all Christians alike. Paul says of them, last part of verse 5, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. That godliness, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, it's interesting to me the way this is worded. And I hadn't given a lot of thought of this until preparing for this teaching. But notice it says there, these men suppose that godliness is a means of gain. The word suppose here helps us to understand the degradation of their thinking. It can describe having something in common use or something that is a custom. This is something that they are presuming upon. It seems here to point to thinking that has settled into an assumption. It is a pattern of thinking that is unexamined because it's presumed to be true. It reveals this as their default mode of thinking. Clearly, these false teachers in Ephesus were motivated by greed and were charlatans using their doctrine to bilk the believers of their funds. Now, this is not to say that the false teachers did not sincerely believe what they taught, but it is to underscore that their motives were not purely doctrinal. Behind the opponent's facade, their supposed intellectualism 
and false piety lies the real motivation for their ministry. They wanted to make money. They wanted the cash. Now, unlike Paul, they cannot say, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes, Paul said to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 33. Nor are they, as we saw back in chapter 3, nor are they free from the love of money. In the words of Peter, they have forsaken the right way, they have gone astray, they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Simon the sorcerer was an example of a greedy false teacher. Remember that guy? His foolish attempt to buy the power of the Spirit brought a very stinging rebuke from Peter. When Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, Acts 8.18 says, he offered them money, saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. That's Acts uh, 8, 18 through 23. Now, our day too has more than its share of Simons. And their greed betrays their impure motives and marks them as false teachers. One writer said this, the pathology of false teachers is clear. They deny the truth and their teaching does not produce godly living. They are arrogant and ignorant of spiritual truth. They spend their time in foolish speculations that lead only to chaos and division. Having forsaken the truth, they face eternal destruction. And they serve money, not God. <clears throat> the church must take extreme care not to allow these men to spread their deadly disease. The resulting epidemic would be tragic this one writer said. And I agree. I agree with that 100%. Now, it is more than likely appropriate for us at this point to apply these words of scripture to a particular body of religious charlatans who happen to be a very prominent fixture within the professing church today. A relatively new brand of self-proclaimed ministers who promulgate a view that's commonly known as the prosperity gospel or the word of faith movement. Now, when I say new, I mean like less than 100 years old. It is a relatively new movement, at least in its current form. But the influence of the prosperity gospel or the word of faith movement has been very, very pervasive during this time and has gained enough of a following that there are hundreds of these churches, 
some of which fall into the category of megachurches. Now, as a whole, the movement embraces numerous aberrant and even heretical beliefs. But one of the things that throws people off about <coughs> the teacher of this, of teachers of this movement is that sometimes they actually get it right. Some of them have a very slick, crafty persona, and they throw in enough Bible verses to kind of try to cover their tracks. But the clear doctrinal error that permeates the movement and its teachings cannot be covered up. It's blatantly bad. You just have to listen long enough and kind of read between the lines sometimes. There are a number of names associated with the movement that you may be familiar with. The late Kenneth Hagin is considered to be the father or the architect of the movement, though he was undoubtedly influenced by a gentleman by the name of E.W. Kenyon. And even though that is the case, probably Hagen is, is the face that brought the movement into to a global phenomenon. Other prominent names include people like Kenneth Copeland, uh, John N. Vanzini, Marilyn Hickey, Joyce Meyer, Fred Price, Creflo Dollar, Robert Tilton, and a host of others. Even Joel Osteen smacks of the word faith theology. And even though the movement believes and teaches a number of horrific theological errors, for our purposes, we're just going to focus on their very strong preoccupation of just what it says here, supposing that godliness is a means of gain. Now, they use a number of twisted biblical texts to accomplish their goal. I actually ran across a very good summary of their beliefs on the Gospel Coalition website, and I'm going to use some excerpts from that to point out some of their aberrant beliefs. And this just represents, this is just a few highlights of their beliefs. We could do probably a few weeks of teachings on what they believe. If you're interested in really digging in to finding out what it is these guys believe, I brought the book that's considered to be one of the most authoritative books on the movement. It's a book called A Different Gospel by D.R. McConnell. And uh, the book was actually written back in the late 1990s. <clears throat> but uh, it's an excellent work. And the guy actually did a doctrinal thesis on the, on the, the, uh, the movement and some of the beliefs that support <clears throat> what it is they teach publicly. But let's just go through a few of the things. How many of you have heard of the Word of Faith movement? Anybody out there heard of these guys? Probably most of you have. <clears throat> I don't even know if you can get TBN. I think TBN is on cable, but uh, <clears throat> some of you may be familiar with the Trinity Broadcast Network where a lot of these guys have a, a platform to teach. But let's just consider a few things that these, that these teachers believe and <clears throat> things that they promulgate. First of all, they believe this, amazingly. They believe that the Abrahamic covenant is a means to material entitlement. That's one of the things that they get out of the Abrahamic covenant. I'm quoting here. Christians are Abraham's spiritual children and heirs to the blessings of faith. That sounds pretty reasonable, right? 
This Abrahamic inheritance is unpacked primarily in terms of material entitlements. So you're thinking, it starts off good. I mean, we are recipients of the Abrahamic covenant in many ways. And then they throw in the idea that, yes, in terms of material entitlements. So in other words, the prosperity gospel teaches that the primary purpose of the Abrahamic covenant was for God to bless Abraham materially. And since believers are now Abraham's spiritual children, we have inherited these financial blessings. Kenneth Copeland, in a book that he wrote many years ago, a book called The Laws of Prosperity, said this, Since God's covenant has been established and prosperity is a provision of this covenant, you need to realize that prosperity belongs to you now. Now what he means by that and what we may think he means by that are two different things. They're talking in terms of material blessings. Now to support this claim, prosperity teachers will typically appeal to Galatians 3.14, which refers to the blessings of Abraham that come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. It's interesting, however, that in their appeals to Galatians 3.14, these teachers ignore the second half of the verse, which says that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So Paul is clearly reminding the Galatians of the spiritual blessings of salvation, not the material blessings of wealth. So that's one problem number one. And this is, I'm, this, we're just, this is the tip of the iceberg. Number two, they believe this. Christians give in order to gain material compensation from God. One of the most striking characteristics of the prosperity theologians is their seeming fixation on the act of giving. The driving force behind this teaching on giving is what prosperity teacher Robert Tilton referred to as the law of compensation. According to this law, purportedly based on Mark 10.30, Christians should give generously to others because when they do, God gives back more in return. This in turn leads to a cycle of ever-increasing prosperity. As Gloria Copeland put it in her 2012 book, God's Will is Prosperity, she said in her book, give $10 and receive 1000 Give $1,000 and receive 100000 In short, she says, Mark 10.30 is a very good deal. It is evident then that the prosperity gospel's doctrine of giving is built on faulty motives. Whereas Jesus taught his disciples to give, hoping for nothing in return, prosperity theologians teach their disciples to give because they will get a return, a financial return. Now, this is interesting. Maybe some of you saw this headline last week about Word of Faith proponent Paula White. This was in Newsweek magazine. Paula White, allegedly Donald Trump's spiritual advisor, has suggested that people send her money in order to transform their lives 
or face divine consequences. Paula White, who heads up the president's Evangelical Advisory Committee, suggested making a donation to her ministries to honor the religious principle of first fruit, which she said is the idea that all firsts belong to God, including the first harvest and apparently the first month of your salary. That's what she was specifically asking for. Right now, she says, I want you to click on that button and I want you to honor God with his first fruits offering. She said in a video shared to her shared to her website in which she encourages her followers to donate to her ministries to get blessings from God. She said, if God doesn't divinely step in and intervene, I don't know what you're going to face. He does, she said. Explaining the principle of the donations, the Pentecostal televangelist suggested that people would reap rewards after donating to her. In her newest video, the pastor encourages people to send her money, stating each January, I put God first and honor him with the first of our substance by sowing a first fruits offering of one month's pay. That is a big sacrifice, but it is a seed for the harvest I am believing for in the coming year, and God will always provide. Those who send white money, which... Those who send white money, which she suggests belong to God, will see positive consequences, she claims. So, end of quote, by the way. So, there you have it. Send to her and your whole year will be blessed because you're honoring the Lord with, with your first fruits. And who doesn't want to honor the Lord with their first fruits, right? Okay, that's number two. Number three. We're almost done here. The faith movement believes that faith is a self-generated spiritual force that leads to prosperity. Now notice the operative phrase there. Faith is a self-generated spiritual force that leads to prosperity. (coughs) I'm quoting here. Whereas Orthodox Christianity understands faith to be trust in the person of Jesus Christ... Prosperity teachers espouse something quite different. Faith is a spiritual force, a spiritual energy, a spiritual power. And it is this force of faith which makes the law, the laws of the spirit world function. Copeland writes in The Laws of Prosperity, he writes this, there are certain laws governing prosperity revealed in God's word. Faith causes them to function, end quote. So according to prosperity theology, faith is not God-granted, it's not, God's, it's not a God-centered act of the will, rather it is, humanly, it is a humanly wrought spiritual force <coughs> directed at God. And so what they essentially teach is that we get God to do our bidding by the force of, of faith. And this inevitably leads to the last thing I want to talk about, and that is they believe that prayer is a tool to force God to grant prosperity. Prosperity gospel teachers 
often note that we have not because we ask not. As Creflo Dollar writes, when we pray, believing that we have already received what we are praying, God has no choice but to make our prayers come to pass. It is a key to getting results as a Christian. Now, prayer for personal blessings is not something that is inherently wrong, obviously. But the prosperity gospel's overemphasis on man turns prayer into a tool that believers can use to force God to grant their desires. Consider these quotes. Kenneth Copeland said, When we use the spiritual laws that God has set up, God must obey what we, what we request. <clears throat> Creflo Dollar agrees with Copeland. He says this, He, God, is only obligated to do what you say with your mouth. And if you don't say it, he's not obligated to do it. But if you say it, then the apostle and the high priest of our profession is obligated to carry out what you said. Fred Price, he's even more bold. He says this, it's a matter of your faith. You got $1 faith? and you ask for a $10,000 item, it ain't going to work. It won't work. Jesus said, according to your faith, not according to his will. If he can work it into his busy schedule, he said, according to your faith, be it unto you. Now I may want a Rolls Royce and don't, excuse me. Now I may want a Rolls Royce and don't have but bicycle faith. Guess what? Am I going to get it? What am I going to get? A bicycle. If that's the only faith I have is a small faith, then all I'm getting is a bike. What happened to now and him is able to do exceeding abundantly above all the way ask for thing according to the power that works in us? I guess that doesn't apply. So within the prosperity movement theology, man, not God, becomes the focal point of prayer. Curiously, prosperity preachers often ignore the second half of James' teaching on prayer. <clears throat> yeah, you have not because you ask not. Then it says you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it upon your, your lusts. So there's that part of the verse too. Now I could barrage you with dozens of additional quotes. Suffice it to say that this teaching is a doctrine of demons. Now, I do want to say just so we're not confused here. There is a blessing in giving. That's true. God loves a cheerful giver. And when ch Christians give cheerfully unto God, they shouldn't expect, Lord, I gave you a dollar, I'm expecting a thousand. That, that's not the motive of giving. The motive of giving is selfless. The motive of giving is, I don't care what I get back. But the truth of the matter is, we do always get back. And oftentimes we do get back more than we've given. We can't really outgive God, can we? So there's an element of truth to that, right? And that's why some people that are sucked into this, it kind of resonates with them a little bit because there is a scripture that says, you know, that sow and it shall be given to you, you know, reap and that. And they're thinking, well, yeah, there is that, there, there is that kind of, dynamic in the scriptures 
But we don't demand of God anything. I don't stand before God and demand, you have to do this, God. You said. Now, there's so much more we could go into about this. But I just wanted to throw that out very quickly just to have you understand that we have this very thing that Paul is addressing here. We have that going on today and it's popular. The movement has had a profound influence globally. Very popular in Africa. It's very popular in Latin and South America. But this kind of theology is to be rejected by the church, by the Christian church. How shameful that prominent Christian bookstores carry their material. I'm glad one chain's been shut down. I really am. Notice at the tail end of verse 5, if you have a King James Bible, there's a textual variant there. The King James reflects this with an additional phrase that says, from such withdraw thyself. So that's a a reasonable response and directive to Timothy who should have no part in the schemes of such men. So Paul says of these men who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. These These are very wicked, evil men who are greedy for gain. But now starting in verse 6, Paul now moves on from a defining component of the false teachers, greed and covetousness, to warn generally of the sin of covetousness. To all of God's people, this warning is giving. Because what compelled these false teachers to go after the error of Balaam is something that any one of us could succumb to if we are not careful. And so these next passages warn us about the danger of this and instruct us on how to avoid the trap that this sin wants to ensnare us in. Let's look at this in verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world and so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. That certainly flies in the face of many of the quotes that I just gave of these prosperity teachers. And these are monumental verses for Christian living. Let's walk through this, going back to verse 6. Now, the NASB is actually more wordy than the King James Version, but both translations make the point very clear. The opening word in verse 6, the word but, is our connecting word to verse 5. It can also be translated as indeed. In the first saying, Paul asserts that true godliness was accompanied by contentment. Such contented godliness, he says, is truly profitable. Now, contentment understood by some is understood by some as something more like self-sufficiency. And this was actually considered to be a virtue in Greek philosophy. They understood this idea as as meaning self-sufficiency. 
But Paul, for his part, didn't advocate the Greek version of contentment, but declared that true contentment is satisfaction with Christ rather than self-reliance. This isn't talking about being self-reliant. And such true contentment stands in contrast with greed and a desire for more, which just leads to the exploitation of others. At its essence, godliness is not a means of material gain. As a spiritual virtue, it is gain in and of itself. Godliness, just having godliness, should be something that we're always content with. Just being godly. Just living as a godly person. This message obviously has strong countercultural implications in Western culture, which is increasingly materialistic. Even Christians are frequently drawn into a pattern of, of spending and of consumer debt and defining status primarily based on material possessions. I mean, we look around and we think, you know, one day I'd like to own this and own that and own this and own that. And we have very interesting ideas of particular goals that we want to achieve, oftentimes based on what we're going to get financially, what we're going to acquire materially. But for the Christian, unlike the Greek philosophers, contentment derives from God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. And of course, you guys know Philippians 4, 11. Paul says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. He had both. In every and every in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So true godliness produces contentment and spiritual riches, and people are truly rich when they are content with what they have. One writer said, "The richest person is the one who doesn't need anything else." The richest person is the one who doesn't need anything else. In fact, real quick, here's a good prayer for us. Want to see a good prayer? Turn to Proverbs 30. You probably know this prayer. But uh, let's look at it anyway real quick. Proverbs 30, you know, verse 7. Familiar with this? Here's Here's a great thing to make a prayer. Verse 7. Two things I ask of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Just picture yourself praying this to God. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I may not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal 
and profane the name of my God. Isn't that the perfect balance right there? That's the prayer for us. Flip on back to 1 Timothy. <clears throat> I'm going to wrap up here in just a minute. But I want us to look at verse 7 before we do. Once again, verse 7, For we have brought nothing into the world, and so we cannot take anything out of it either. Now we'll notice that verse 7 begins with what we call a conjunction, the word for. This signals that what we encounter here is in some way an explanation or cause behind Paul's statement in verse 6. The fact is we have brought nothing into the world. This is a universal fact. And this is Paul's way of further arguing against the false teachers and their love for money. Wealth and all that it stands for belongs to this passing world. The people owned nothing when they entered life and they will leave life in the same condition. By our very nature as mortal beings, we are unable to take any of our stuff beyond the grave. We have no power to do it. We had no power to bring it in. We have no power to take it out. The point of verse 7 is actually made repeatedly throughout the scriptures. Job declared, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. <clears throat> the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And of course he said this after he had been afflicted by Satan. After he had lost, he had been stripped of everything. And you know, sometimes you, you, you come to that point, sometimes, where you're probably in our most spiritual moments when we realize that what we have is, in this life is so transient, it's so fleeting, it can just disappear at the drop of a hat. I mean, I could drop right now with some sickness, be carted off to a hospital, and I could be on my deathbed in moments. And whatever I have, it won't matter in that particular moment. I'm not going to take it with me. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I've seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. Whether those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered his son, then there is nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? We toil, we strive, we are ambitious, we want to get it all, man. Fred Price tells us we should. Kenneth Copeland says, go for it, man. 
You got bicycle faith. Come on, you need Cadillac faith, Rolls Royce faith. I want Maserati faith. That's what I want. I want a fast sports car, man. Rub the little genie in the bottle and out pops the goodies. Is that really what we're supposed to think about these promises that God has given us in the word to prosperity, spiritual prosperity? And Jesus said, when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, whatever you need in this life, he'll give it to you. He knows what we need. He knows what it takes to keep things running, to keep the lights on. And you know what? God's so good, he throws in a bunch of other stuff as well. Abraham was a very rich man. You know how rich Abraham was? I'm reading in Genesis right now, and I have an article from a really good magazine called Bible and Spade. It's the best archaeological magazine there is. And they were talking about, in the, in the article, they were talking about the wealth of the patriarchs. These dudes were loaded. Abraham by modern standards, was a billionaire. So was Job. God entrusted these men with great wealth. And that's God's prerogative. If he's going to do that, he's going to do it. But he doesn't ever command anyone to run after that and to make that their life's pursuit. And so we're going to continue to get into this and we haven't even hit on verse 8 yet and then there's verse 9 and there's, there's a lot to consider here. Now, one of the things we have to be very careful of, and maybe I'll expound on this a little bit next week, <clears throat> we also don't have to feel guilty because we have material things that God's blessed us with. I think sometimes we uh, like to hear that, that guilt trip, you know, especially as Americans, feeling guilty. We only need to feel guilty if we're not grateful for it, if we're greedy for it, I mean, we don't need to feel guilty because God's blessed our lives. He's, if he's blessed our lives, then he's also, he also wants us to be very generous with the things he's blessed us with. So there, there doesn't need to be that, that kind of guilt there. That's just fleshly. Oftentimes projected upon us by people who are covetous. They just want what we have. But we, we need to have a very healthy mindset about material blessings. And God blesses us with a variety of things so that we in turn can be very generous with those things. So we'll get into all that, Lord willing, next week. Let's stand. I hope I didn't bore you guys too much with that information on the prosperity gospel. Most of you are well equipped enough to understand just how foolish that stuff is. However, there are a lot of people who have been carried away with that theology. A lot of people. There are very, very large churches that embrace that theology wholeheartedly. And it truly is a doctrine of demons. That's what it is. And we should despise it and loathe it. I don't, I don't consider those men fellow brethren in the Lord. I will just tell you that. I don't. I see them as charlatans. Paul didn't consider these brethren 
or these men as brethren in the Lord. <clears throat> this, is, this is not in that category. These men are lying to people and robbing them, lying and taking their dough. <clears throat> and they're getting rich because of it. They're enriching themselves and using God's flock to do it. And that's a very dangerous thing. But we should pray for them. We should pray that God will open their eyes and help them to see the Bible that many of them know pretty well. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you today that you are so gracious to us. And Father, that you have given us so many things as blessings from you to enjoy. Lord, we want to have hearts of gratitude. And we also want to be content. That's something that we do struggle with, Lord, is being content. I know that I do. And I know, Father, you've had to work so many things into my heart concerning that. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we continue on with this, Lord willing, next week, that you would bless us, God, by giving us a full understanding of, of how to be free from the love of money. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you guys.